You are listening to the Green Man Podcast. Shamai Green Man Podcast. Green Man Podcast. You're listening to the Green Man Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, next up, we have one of my favourite music books of the year, Dance Your Way Home, written by the excellent Emma Warren. And Emma's going to be speaking to a, a name who's very familiar to all of you, Richard King. Please welcome them. Thank you. Shamai Shamai, Prananda, Richard King, Adui, Kroiso Apob. Hey everybody, my name's Richard King. I'm here today speaking to one of the original team behind the iconic Jockey Slut magazine, <laughs> the former club and hype editor of The Face, when it was still good. Uh, uh, former pri- former judge of the uh, Mercury Music Prize. Uh, for a long time, the public face of the Red Bull Music Academy. Uh, editor of Live magazine. And until recently, DJ and host of a wonderful show on the much-missed Worldwide FM. It's a great pleasure today to be here with my friend and colleague, Ms. Emma Warren. Thank you, Richard, for a lovely introduction. Uh, Emma, you wanted to start with the, the, your customary yes. roll call. Yes, I'm going to stand for this, if that's okay, um, because I think it is important. So I've come and asked some of you for the name of a dance floor that you have loved being on, and I've collected them into a list, and I'm going to read them out like a sort of poem um, as a way of showing some gratitude for these places and the fact they existed and that none of them happened by accident and that they were all built on the graft of mad people who make spaces and run venues. And so, yeah, show your gratitude for these places however you feel, either like when you hear something or at the end or whatever. But this is today's Royal Call of Honour. I do this at every, every time I talk about the book and that means that every time I have a really unique record of who is in the room and the places that mattered to them, which matters to me. So today we have Timepiece Exeter, The Forum Kentish Town, Moon Club Bristol. Yes. The Pier Wigan, Round the Twister Green Man, a massive tent rave called Deception near Exeter circa 1995, Panorama Bar Berlin, The Grand Bursting Hotel Folkestone, the headland viewed in the 1970s is now a block of old people's flats. Skinandi's Thurzo in the North Islands, upstairs in the Square Cliff, Square Club, Cardiff. Nero's Function Suite, Cardiff. Cooper's Cardiff, Cardiff crew in the house. Rivoli Ballroom, Broccoli, The Palace, Whitney, Poonanas, Oxford, Heaven, London, New Year's Eve 2019. That one in Malaga where I fell off the table. Studio 18, Stroud, Boxes, Exeter, Barons, Swansea, first floor, not second floor, Turnmills, London, circa 1998, Zap Club, Brighton, Club MOT, Bermondsey, The Ritzy, Newcastle, and Pontins, Western Supermare. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So, um, last night, in between... Uh, meteorological apex of something approximating both a typhoon and a monsoon. <laughs> Several thousand of us watched the comet as coming. Um, 
not for the faint-hearted, that rain. And they're a group of musicians who, uh, who uh, are part of um, a wider network and community from Total Refreshment Centre in London. Uh, a club, a space, a community, a studio. And before Dance Your Way Home, your current book, you wrote a book called Make Some Space about Total Refreshment Centre. And one of the lines in that book that really struck, struck me when I read it was dancing as medicine, dancing as a form of medicine. And I think in Dance Your Way Home, which is a brilliant exploration of much of your work, community, culture, the dance, why people need to dance, it feels to me this is a celebration of the human need to dance and what dancing can do for us spiritually, emotionally, but particularly medically. Could you talk about how you, what put you in a certain place that you, you thought in those terms? Yes, thank you for asking it like that. So that line, dancing is medicine, was a line in a book I made called Make Some Space. Um, I made it myself. I'm, I put it out myself. I don't call it self-publishing because that's quite stigmatised. I call it independent publishing. I've got boxes through from the printer to my stairs and I like distributed them very much by hand in the same way that the Total Refreshment Centre was made by hand. So the thing was like the thing, which I think is a very powerful um, intention. And in that book, I wrote this line, dancing is medicine, it's a human need, we've been dancing in the dark for as long as we've been humans. And at the time, it felt like a bit of a reach, if I'm honest. I thought, mm, I'm pushing it a bit here, but I'm, I kind of felt it somewhere before I was able to articulate it or, um, or prove it, maybe. And then, because I made this book, the esteemed publishers, Faber and Faber, asked me if, uh, if I had any other ideas. And so I thought, oh, well, you know what, that dancing is medicine thing, it, since it's come out, it, it feels truer than it did when I like, reached to write it. It feels truer, and I'm, I wonder if maybe like, if, I, like, if I dig behind that sentence, what might I find? And it, it turns out that I've found it a lot. Um, and now I feel like I can say really confidently and incontrovertibly, dancing is medicine. We've been doing it in the dark for as long as we've been humans, and it's a basic human need. And in the book, you actually look at people with certain illnesses like ADHD or Parkinson's or other disabilities and how I think one of the things that's really quite remarkable in the book is you you talk about how our bodies contain stories and how those stories that we contain in our bodies inform how we move and how we dance and you write very lyrically about dancing our own stories and it's very moving when you, real, when you speak to people whose bodies have slightly given up on them, but they continue, continue to tell their stories on the dance floor. We, was that something you'd thought about beforehand, or did that come through the research you did? I mean, all of it came through the exploration. I mean, literally at the beginning of writing Dance Your Way Home, all I had was that line, dancing is medicine. I had a feeling, a kind of body knowledge that this was true. Um, and so there were many things that became clear to me through the writing of it. And I wrote it in a very exploratory way. Didn't really... I mean, I, <clears throat> I had to have a plan beforehand because that's how you get a book deal. But the plan is a bit of a made-up thing, you know. The plan is what you kind of pretend you're going to do and then you find out what you're actually going to do by doing it. That's how it is for me anyway. 
And so I, I didn't know about it beforehand, but I definitely knew it afterwards. I know the science now. I mean, I'm not a scientist and it's not a, like a particularly scientific book, but there's good evidence that shows that Argentine tango rates as well as or better than um, uh, traditional physiotherapy for Parkinson's, say. Um, I spoke to people <clears throat> who were like junglist ravers who are now with, uh, kind of like fairly deep in their MS journey and wheelchair users. And he, this guy, Brian Belfortune, wrote a brilliant book about jungle called All Crews. And he talked very powerfully about how important the dance was to him pre-wheelchair use and also now in his life. He still goes to Sun and Bass Festival in Sardinia. He still finds a way to move the parts of his body that work. And that is extremely joyful for him. And so I feel like, like I said at the beginning, um, I found all these things out beforehand. They weren't obvious to me. Um, oh, sorry, I found them all out afterwards. They weren't obvious to me beforehand. And I don't think they were really obvious in the round. You know, dance movement psychotherapists might know a little bit. Um, Argentine, you know, tanguistas might know a bit about something else. But I feel like I was able, in a really a joyful way, to bring together some stuff from the margins and just put it all together and say, here, dancing is medicine. It's powerful. And then going back to spaces like Total Refreshment Centre... <coughs> In a way, this book is a history of spaces, DIY spaces, places where people have made a space to dance. And reading it, what I realised was the, the kind of local news bulletin, mainstream media version of what constitutes a nightclub, somewhere with a certain aesthetic of lighting, a bouncer, a sort of drinks offers... Those places are actually anomalies. Those aren't where we dance as a country. And where we dance is far more like where some of us have danced, not all of us, far more like the closing scene of the film Babylon. Uh, one of the films that really gets to the heart of why people need to dance. Whoever's making this music really needs to know how to dance as well, I'll tell you that now. Uh, I think they finished quite soon. I welcome it all. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, um, yeah, so the part I'm trying to make is you explore the spaces of where people dance and you define how these spaces are made and the different communities that make them often people of colour, people from marginalised communities. And what this isn't, and what I think the, one of the great strengths of the book is, it's not some acid house geezer rave memoir that takes the hacienda as a jumping off point about what constitutes dance. Yeah, that might be somewhat difficult for me to achieve. <laughs> I wonder, maybe, um, maybe a useful thing to say is that um, the dance floor is such a big subject. Well, first of all, I've realised quite recently that you know, the dance floor is my subject. Some people write about housing, some people write about health, some people write about themselves. But my subject is the dance floor, and boy, it's such an amazing subject to have because, A, it's so rich and it's so diverse, but also it's really underexplored. And so I had to make a decision about how I was going to do this, which, you know, a kind of social history of the dance floor, you might as well do a social history of breathing, although actually that book exists and it's pretty good. <laughs> um, really helped me when I had long COVID, actually. Um, but I realised I needed a route through the material, and so I used dance floors that I've either been on or that I have a connection with as my kind of guiding idea. I took the idea from a Swedish writer called Sven Lindqvist, who wrote a book called Dig Where You Stand, 
in, in that he, he had this whole system in the 70s where he would teach factory workers how to research their workplaces so they could better advocate for workplace rights. So I used Dig Where You Stand, um, and I've used dance floors that I've either been on, which is hence why it's got me in it. I didn't really want to write a memoir, but I realised that I needed to be on this dance floor to bring people with me, like that lovely first person who gets on the dance floor and starts the party. I'm not that person. But in the book, I needed to be that person. I needed to make people feel comfortable to come with me, and so therefore I needed to be in it. So there's my youth club discos, there's my school discos, there's acid house nights I went to, there's jungle raves I went to, and then there's places like the Total Refreshment Centre. But then there are also dance floors I'm connected through to through lineage, and my lineage is Irish, so there's a whole chapter on 1930s Ireland and the way that the state and the police and the priests tried to squash the dance, particularly jazz dancing, because it was pagan, uh, meaning English or foreign, which was at that point a reasonable thing to be, uh, you know, 1930s Ireland. These things were fairly strongly contested. Um, and also, um, the other thing I'd probably say about that is that there's also a section on the reggae dance floors of late 70s and early 80s uh, cities in the UK, which were not dance floors I was on. And those are not dance floors which exist in my kind of biological family. But I couldn't tell the stories of the dance floors that followed without telling those stories as a foundation. So um, that's the kind of... Uh, that's the route through the material. And by saying that, I don't actually remember what you actually wanted me to say. Well, was it something... What was it? Tell me again. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the question that you've answered, which is um, you brilliantly evoke being at the last night of Shoom, the legendary Acid House Club. And as an antidote to Acid House Giza, oh, yeah. uh, druggy memoir style... You write about the fact that you were there and you felt the love and you felt the joy and the excitement of the space, but you weren't on drugs. And you make the point that people didn't need to be on drugs. And you tell this brilliant story of how a policeman was there and he was really disappointed at what was happening in the club at Shoom because he didn't understand what was happening because the men and the women weren't dancing together arm in arm. And why was this... Why was this club happening where people weren't even dancing in the way that they were trying to cop off with each other? So many misunderstandings there, aren't there? I mean, no, I wasn't on drugs at the famous Acid House Night Shum, partly because I had to go to school the next day. Um, I was quite underage. Um, also, and this is so Catholic of me, but I also feel really guilty about it because I ditched my friends in a really outrageous way. I still feel bad about it, so yeah. Pat and Ads, I'm really, really sorry. I did see you when you were, like, waving at me to like, to let me get you in, but I didn't. I pretended I didn't see you because it was so important to me that I got in and I thought if I tried to bring anyone else with me, the woman on the door is just going to tell me a hard no because she's already wondering whether or not to say no, but I'm pleading with her and I'm the last person who's let in. There's maybe one person who came in behind me, but that's it. So, yes, I was there. No, I wasn't on drugs. And there were other people also not on drugs. A lot of the stories of Acid House are all about, it was all about ecstasy, and that's not the case and it's particularly not the case for people who have a lot of dancing in their family backgrounds. So the degree to which you had dancing in your family backgrounds relates to the degree to which you needed or didn't need um, MDMA. Um, yeah, so drugs. Oh, and the police. Yes. There's a lot more police in my book than I anticipated. I wasn't expecting to write a book in which the police turned up in every chapter 
but they did turn up in every chapter, banging the door down, making a nuisance of themselves, coming in, turning things off, stopping things, um, and you know, uh, approaching public order in a, in a way which is really not replicated in other arenas. And yes. uh, that moral panic over Acid House at places like Shoe, mm -hmm. uh, where the policeman was confused that people weren't dancing to try and cop off with each other, really that, so what was that, 1989, that set the tone for the policing of dancing that we're still living with today. Yeah, absolutely. So that moral panic, which was a tabloid moral panic, uh, led to a change in legislation about how dances were policed and to this day particularly with noise some people would say problems we would say joyful necessary happenings we're living in this long shadow of that tabloid sensationalism of acid house in terms of how we're policed when we try and dance sure i mean there's a brilliant bit in i can't, actually i can't remember remember which of your books it's in is it in lark where you find the the bit in like when the 30 years were up and government memos get released you found a bit didn't you which was about um what is it malcolm rifkind yes what is it that he says he says he writes to margaret thatcher he does i've forgotten i think it's i think what it is is i think you found the document where um this is why it's good having friends who are writers as well because like you can your work will inevitably end up um, responding to each other? Well, I wish. <laughs> uh, Malcolm Rifkin, I did a freedom of information request and I looked at what the then Home Secretary wrote about repetitive beats and uh, it, the line about repetitive beats is actually misquoted quite a lot and what his concern was about and what he was writing to the Prime Minister about was um, the fact that people were able to congregate together. And that, that might, you might, when you make this legislation, accidentally catch an entirely innocent barn dance. Exactly. That's the killer line, um, which actually is replicated in, in uh, the research or the things I found out about 1930s Ireland. There was this um, committee called the Carrigan Committee who ended up making something called the Public Dance Halls Act, which was the Criminal Justice Act of 1930s Ireland. And in it, committee members cautioned against... Um, being too extreme about defining a dance or defining jazz dance or defining anti-social dancing by saying someone having a dance in their house might be hauled up in front of the courts under this legislation. So I think it's just totally, as much as it's a human need to dance in the dark, it's also a human need of those with tons of structural power who prefer to rule by coercion to squash the dance wherever possible. And that's why the very first act of the new right-wing government in Italy who came into power last October was what they would call an anti-rave law and what we might call, call legislation against organising to dance with your friends in a, in a manner that suits you at a volume that you like. And uh, since COVID, is it one in three... I don't really like using the word nightclubs because I think that does these spaces a disservice, but where people congregate have been closing down. And we're in a time now where, and you write brilliantly at the end about Plastic People, wonderful club in London, and about how that was slowly, slowly shut down by the authorities. And that feels like um, it's almost inevitable that a place where there's a concentration on a really good PA, on a place where people can come together irrespective of a dress code and people who just want to enjoy music in the dark, 
it's a sense that if you open a space like that, you will be shut down. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I want to come back to the, the sort of observation you made at the beginning about... Um, we talk about nightclubs and something comes to mind. If I talk about nightclubs, you're probably going to get, like, this, in your head, maybe the sort of place where you get free tickets for your 18th birthday. You know, chrome, mirrors, um, a certain type of mainstream music policy. Um, and I think we also very much conflate the dance floor or dancing with the rave and therefore with hedonism, therefore with drugs, therefore with illicit behaviour. Um, and I'm saying that the dance floor is those things but it's much, much wider than that. The dance floor is the village green. The dance floor is the crossroads. The dance floor is anywhere that we gather to dance to do this very normal thing together. And as soon as we start to see it as an extension of public space, then we start to be able to um, advocate for it a bit better, understand it a bit better, realize that it's not a marginal thing. It's a totally normal, middle of life sort of thing. You know, I'm, I'm sure everybody here will have had like a little family dance in their kitchen at some point. In that moment, your kitchen becomes a dance floor. And even those kind of dance floors, household dance floors, are at risk of um, the kind of intolerance where we see people complaining against noise, which in my view is the antisocial behaviour. It is antisocial to complain about noise. It is, not, it is actually social to make noise and to dance together. The antisocial behaviour... Uh, is enacted by the complainers. And I, I had a funny thought where apparently if, you're, um, if, if the council or the legislat leg legislators come down on you for making noise, they can confiscate the nuisance-making um, technologies or devices. And I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if you told people that if they complained too often about noise, you would take away their phones <laughs> so they could no longer use the devices that cause the nuisance cause the antisocial behaviour through which they're complaining, confiscate their laptops. Um, you write about euphoria in a very particular way. The euphoria of the dance club is a product of the, the consciousness of all the people being together. There's a phrase um, psychologists use, I think originally for football crowds when they responded to a goal or a move, and that's shoal emotion. So, like a shoal of fish, an emotion moving through a space. I was wondering if you could read a brilliant example of shoal emotion when you talk about um, being in a protest dance. Then, yeah. um, I think it's page 52. <laughs> Quite right. So set the context. Yeah, this comes from a section, um, a chapter called National Dance, in which I posed myself the question, like, what is our national dance as, you know, Welsh, English, Northern Irish or Scottish people? Um, often English people in particular think of folk dancing as something for other people, but then that's to do with some English things, right? Um, what's that quote? You can either have power or soul, but you can't have both. Um, <laughs> So in this chapter, I try and understand, I try and like, uh, understand what is our national dance and I also try and dig into lineage as well because I also have English lineage. What is Anglo-Saxon dancing? And I wonder how did Anglo-Saxon people dance like really far back? So um, it begins with me finding this brooch uh, which has got some images on it which relate to movement and then trying to understand and finding out about Larry Alehouse dances and girls in the woods all dancing together and suddenly like 800 AD 
it's the after one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's the A that gives it away. Um, 800 AD, you know, like girls all dancing together is not that different from like my ideas of like my mid 80s school discos. Um, so yeah, there's lots of lots of like me exploring sort of folk dance, which inevitably takes me to a little bit of Cecil Sharp House and going to this funny, amazing conference actually, where practitioners would be talking about step dancing in uh, all across the UK and Northern Ireland, and then getting up and doing a little sh it's like like performance practitioners, you know, professionals who could tell you about a thing and then show you a thing with their feet. But woven into that is the story of what I am wondering might be a new national dance, which is the electric slide. And those of you that have been to weddings in inner cities uh, where at least one of the, the kind of bridal party um, has probably like um, Black Atlantic, um, probably like Caribbean people in their, in their family lineage, then you may have seen an electric slide often happening, instigated by the opening bars of Cameo by Candy. And so uh, there's a whole exploration of the electric slide and how that happened. I was quite proud of that bit because I think I found out how it got connected to Cameo's Candy. But that's a whole other thing, not what you're asking me about. <laughs> so there's just two paragraphs at the end where I'm describing um, being at a protest and the way in which that dance can also relate to resistance in a very particular way. Parliament Square, the week after George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer, it's impossible to social distance in this sea of young Londoners wearing masks and holding Sharpie banners. There's a powerful combination of undercurrents going on. The twin pandemics of COVID-19 and violence feeding into each other. This response, a protest, is happening right in the middle of this shifting double helix. There's music, banners, families, teenagers, a few middle-aged people like myself and the two friends I'm with. We are crammed sardine style and funneled through the tight exit out towards Westminster Bridge. Something happens nearby which we can't see, but which I watch later online. Someone takes four steps to the right, then to the left. The signal is picked up immediately, and the people around the initiator join in. A group of protesters are doing the electric slide outside 10 Downing Street, articulating a political stance. This is movement in the sense of gesture in action, and in the other sense too, a movement. Movement is communication, dance is language, and both exist so that people, the folk, can say what needs to be said in the now. All right. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, we'll move on to some questions in a moment, but I remembered... Um, wanting particularly for the Green Man audience to talk about um, a comment our, our friend Kieran Yates made about the drop. Um, so for those who don't know, the drop is? Well, um, the moment in a record where um, you know that you're kind of heading towards something and then something happens uh, and then you may begin that process of like moving back up towards a kind of a peak moment, which is going to be followed by some kind of release, a sort of uh, moment of tension and release. And that's very much the moment of epiphany for many people. And Kieran was saying one of the problems with Britain is um, during the drop, a lot of middle class white men try and explain the drop rather than respond to it. <laughs> 
And I thought there might be people here today who've had some degree of affinity with that. Kira Nates, author of a brilliant, brilliant book called All the Houses I've Ever Lived In. You know, her subject is, is kind of housing, but really her book is a dance. Um, and she describes, she also made a brilliant documentary called Estate Music, which is about the way that um, on estates, very thin walls meant that you get exposed to lots of different types of music and the estate as a really important motor of UK music and culture. But yeah, that, I, that kind of image of her like being on the dance floor and having a good time and someone coming up and like explaining through words what she is explaining through a roll of the shoulders just uh, strikes me as a reminder that to move, even if society tells you that you shouldn't, um, is an act of solidarity and generosity and probably more fun than explaining it <laughs> through words. Brilliant. Um, okay, um, well, thank you. I, uh, I can't recommend Dark Two Way Home highly enough. This book in itself is a form of medicine and uh, I encourage you all to read and buy it. We'll both go and sign books over there in a minute. But um, the message that dancing is is medicine is, is something I think however good or bad we might think we are at dancing is something we all need to take in and I'm, I'm very grateful for you for writing this book Emma so ladies and gentlemen Emma Warren Thank you, Thank you.